0: Well, good morning, Crossroads. I hope you've had a great July 4th weekend. I mean, happy birthday, America, right? Ah, yes. I love birthdays. Um, if you look at my calendar, either on my phone or on my computer, you'll see it's littered with people's birthdays. And something I just enjoy doing is calling people or texting them on their special day to let them know just how special they are to me. And so yesterday you know, being America's birthday, I just thought, like, I hope that we recognize that we live in a great country. I mean, I'm sure if we took a quick poll, we could all think of something we wish was different about the country we live in. But I hope that never kind of tarnishes the idea and the concept that we recognize that we live in a great country. We are blessed to live in America. It's not the only greatest country in the world, but it is a great country. The freedoms that we enjoy should never be taken for granted. In fact, we always need to recognize that Our freedoms come at the expense of people who've put themselves in harm's way or made an ultimate sacrifice of giving their life so that we could have freedom. And so I I want us to make sure that that we recognize both of those, the freedoms we enjoy and the cost that brought us our freedoms. You know, one of the things I enjoy are real life stories. When my wife and I choose a movie, we kind of gravitate toward those movies that are based on real life stories. And I don't know if you captured or, or watched the, uh, the the TV miniseries that was called Band of Brothers. I don't know if you watched that. It came out a couple, several years ago on HBO. The Band of Brothers was actually based on a nonfiction book based on that same name, Band of Brothers. It told the journey of this military group called Easy Company. And the Easy Company was actually the second battalion of the 506th parachute division of the 101st Airborne and if uh, you watch that show or if you don't uh, there was one person that was kind of uh, for me a highlight of that entire miniseries, and it was the the commander and officer his name was Major Dick Winters if you know anything about Dick let me tell you if you don't that he was a man of courage he was certainly a man of of conviction He was certainly a man of commitment, but what I love the most about Dick Winters is the fact that he was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he got the nickname, the monastic warrior, because of the way that he lived his life. He never missed a church service, even when he was on active duty. Sometimes that meant he worshiped God in a foxhole. Sometimes that meant he just worshiped God in creation, but he always made it a point to worship God wherever he found himself. He also spent many nights in the barracks alone while the rest of his crew went out and did things that um, maybe they would be embarrassed to talk about uh, in the town wherever they might find themselves. The other thing that maybe separated Dick Winters apart is that he never cursed. In fact, when Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg sat down to write Band of Brothers, they portrayed uh, Dick Winters' character. character as using some army words. And when Dick Winters reviewed the script, he protested and said, you're, you're putting words in my mouth, literally. I never used those words in real life. And I would ask that you would take those out of the script. And they kind of were kind, but said, you know, Dick, we've already written the script. We're already working on production. Well, oh, sorry. And he protested to the point where they actually changed the script because he lived his life with integrity. He lived his life with purity. And one of the writers commented that that is what allowed the men that he led to say, I'll follow him. Even if it was through like the the beaches of Normandy or through uh, under fire in a, a field in Holland. They respected Dick so much that they were willing to put their life on the line with him because of his character and because of his commitment, not only just to our country, but also to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that type of picture that I want us to know about and never forget when we think about the the privileges and the freedoms that we enjoy as a country. And you know, uh, Romans 13 encourages us to, to respect and to honor those that are put in authority above us. And I think it would be very powerful thing if we continually and regularly prayed for those who are in any political office, any form of government, regardless of our political persuasions and regardless who sits in that chair, got to ask us to be respectful and also to be prayerful about our citizenship in this country, but also our citizenship in heaven. So I thought it'd be appropriate if we thank God for the blessings that we have received by living in this country, the freedoms we enjoy, and also ask him to preserve the, the spiritual foundation that this country was built on. I love the fact that that spiritual heritage is etched in granite on many of our national monuments. It's something that should never, ever be ignored. And so I'd like for you to join me in this time of prayer. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. God, we celebrated a special day as a country yesterday. We recognize that we're not a perfect country. God, there's lots of things that we would like to see different and change. But God, we want to just acknowledge that this country was built on godly foundation. In this country, the freedoms that we enjoy, one freedom to worship is something that came at a great cost of many men and women who've placed themselves in harm's way, who've made the ultimate sacrifice. And so God, we want to just to ask you to continue to bless and preserve this country. God, we ask for our local government. We pray for Mayor Winnicky, God, that you would give him wisdom. You would give him discernment. God, that he would make good decisions for this community and around God, we pray for Governor Holcomb, God, that we we pray that you would continue to help him hear your voice and to follow you as he leads our state. And God, for President Trump, we ask that you would bless him and give him wisdom and guidance, surround him with godly counsel that would help him make decisions for this country in which we live. And God, I pray that we as citizens of this country and citizens of heaven, those who claim you as Lord and Savior, God, we would be salt and light in this community, in this state, and in this country, God, for you. And also in this world, Lord, that we, our faith would be what we're known for most of all, that we bring glory and honor to you by the way that we live and by the way that we love. And we pray that through the powerful name of Jesus, amen. You know, as we continue this year long journey through the gospel of John, it's amazing to me how so many things that are happening in our present day kind of match up with the moments that we see Jesus going through in this gospel. And today is no different from that today we're going to see in John chapter 10, Jesus is having another confrontation with the religious leaders. He's also celebrating another religious festival. This festival is the festival of dedication, the feast of dedication. And it's actually the only festival in Judaism that's not prescribed in the Old Testament. Where does it get its history? Well, it gets its history from 167 B.C., When the Persians invaded Jerusalem and when they did, they took over rule and they also took over the temple of God. And as a moment of of like just uh, sarcasm, as a moment to kind of rub the, the Jews face in their captivity. One of the one of the leaders of the Persians, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. If you know anything about Old Testament law, swine was forbidden from touching or even eating. And so he did this to kind of just to poke fun at the Jewish followers. Well, kind of being sick of being oppressed after three years, the Jewish leaders led by Judas Maccabees, also known as Judas the Hammer, went into the temple and they reclaimed the temple for the the, the people of God. And so they made a festival that rededicated the temple to honor God. This eight-day festival was called the Feast of Dedications. It was also called the Festival of Lights because instead of shoot, shooting off fireworks to celebrate their freedom of religion, they actually lit a, lit a big candelabra, a menorah in the, in the temple courts. And this festival is actually still celebrated today, the Festival of Lights, or as we know it, Hanukkah. Now, I was tempted to sing that Adam Sandler song about Hanukkah, you know, like put on your yarmulke, it's time for Hanukkah. But I didn't want you to think that's where I got all this research, right? So John notes that Jesus found himself celebrating the Feast of Dedication. It was in the winter and he was in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, this part of the temple really wasn't constructed by Solomon, but it carried his name. Maybe something that's really unique is that's where we find the early church meeting, Solomon's colonnade, both in Acts 3 and Acts 5. But we want to pick up in this dialogue that Jesus is having with the religious leaders and see what he has to say about his identity, where we can find freedom in Christ by following him in surrender. So look with me at John chapter 10. We'll read in verses 22 through 24. Jesus came to the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, the religious leaders had been blind to the true reality of who Jesus is. They've questioned his identity. They've doubted his authority, even his mission here on earth. In verse 20 and 21, just before this passage, John records that the, the religious leaders were having this debate. They were, they were divided between some who were like, this Jesus guy is a madman. He is demon possessed. He's from the devil. And then a, another group who said, this man is amazing. He heals and does things that only God can do. In fact, they referenced this man he had healed who had been born blind. In verse 24, they question Jesus. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? In fact, uh, another translation of that could be quit annoying us. It kind of just speaks and shows the temperature that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders. They were certainly growing weary of Jesus. They felt threatened by his teaching and his power. And so they demanded a clear answer. Are you the Messiah? Look what Jesus, how he responds in verse 25. In that moment, you see that Jesus is very confident and clear in his response. He says, I am the Messiah. My miracles speak for themselves. He points to the work that he's been doing while here on earth. It's the work that God gave him to do. It reveals the character of God. Everything about Jesus, his teaching, his miracles demonstrate God's character, God's compassion, his power and his purpose. And Jesus also points out clearly why the religious leaders are looking for an answer. It's because they've not listened to him or chosen to follow him. Their allegiance is to something else other than him. So Jesus returns to this theme of how shepherds relate to sheep. We looked at that last week in the first part of chapter 10. Uh, This might be why John places these two events back to back, even though they were separated by three months. It's not one continuous conversation. But Jesus says the religious leaders do not recognize his voice or follow him. They don't believe in him. And this reference to the shepherd and the sheep is a direct link where Jesus is saying, God and I are one. And also it shows us how we can relate to the shepherd as sheep. Jesus says sheep relate to the shepherd by being known. Jesus says they listen, they know, they follow. This connects back to that previous thought in John chapter 10. Jesus also says that the sheep are safe. They have eternal life. They won't perish, Jesus says. This abundant life is here for us now. And this eternal life is something that we can be confident in in the future. And Jesus says they're secure. No one can snatch them from my hand, Jesus says. Sheep are protected by the shepherd. Now this verse brings a lot of debate about uh, this term theologically called eternal security. It's this idea of like once saved, always saved. And that's a lot stemmed a lot of debate over the years. Most of that debate is about us, not about God. It leads us to answer uh, or ask a question like, is there any way that I could lose my salvation? You see, hear the personal pronouns in that? These verses though are all about God, not about us. They're about what, is, what God is doing, not about what we have to do. We shouldn't live in fear that our salvation is based on anything that we do, but more about what God does. So many people think of salvation as this big scale. Like if I do a lot of good things, that'll certainly outweigh any bad things. Or some people think if I can just do that one good thing, that'll guarantee my salvation. Well, 18th century scholar, writer and pastor J.C. Ryle says this. Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them will miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fail, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul might be strong and mighty, but their savior is mightier and no one should pluck them out of the savior's hand. you see where the attention is? You see where the focus is? You see where the security is? Not in us, but in God. Paul makes the same declaration in Romans chapter 8 when he says these words to bring us another sense of confidence. Romans 8, verses 31, he says this. "'What then shall we say in response to these things? "'If God is for us, who can be against us? "'He who did not spare his own son, "'but gave him up for us all, "'will he not also along with him "'graciously give us all things? "'Who will bring any charge "'against those whom God has chosen?' It is God who justifies. Then who will bring any? Then who, who then will bring any condemnation? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, even more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, we shall face seek. Uh, we shall we for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hear the confidence that that Paul wants us to have in Christ who redeems and God who saves? Verse 29 of chapter 10 of John, Jesus says, my father is greater than all. We can be confident and secure because that is true. Whatever you might be going through today, whatever you might be facing, be encouraged that God is bigger. Find strength by placing your faith and trust in him. Let him comfort you, protect you and guide you. Our confidence and security should be in God and what he's doing, not in what we do or have done. Trust in this, rest in this, find peace and security in this. In verse 30, Jesus declares, I and the father are one. That's a statement he's saying, my works have shown who I am. It points that I am not just some mere man. I am fully God. I am one with the father. I think it's another I am statement Jesus is making. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. And Jesus says, I am one with the father. It reflects the monotheistic theology that that existed in Judaism when Deuteronomy 6 says, the Lord is one. But it also points to the cornerstone of creation, of Christianity, that Jesus is fully God. They are the same in essence, even though they have distinct roles. And John has been proclaiming this from the opening pages of his gospel. And everything about Jesus' life points to this truth. But the religious leaders, they are just not having it. In verse 31, it says, again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They'd already attempted to stone him once in John 8, verse 59. For the same reason, blasphemy. The Old Testament certainly commanded stoning for blasphemy. Leviticus 24, 16 says this, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. You might ask yourself, you may have wondered, what is actual blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is defined as claiming to be God, but it's also giving credit or glory To God to someone else I think that was what caused Satan to be banished from heaven he wanted the glory that was due God I think that's what he tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden when he says hey eat this fruit and you'll be like God and it's certainly what he was trying to get Jesus to do when he says bow down and worship me in the desert while tempting Jesus If Jesus were merely a man, then he would have been guilty as charged because he made no bones about him being one with God. But again, everything that Jesus had been doing in his life displayed that he was no mere man. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. So listen to how Jesus defends himself again. John chapter 10 now, verse 32 through 39. Jesus answered them again. Is it not written in your law? I have said that you are God's. He's referring to Psalm 82. It was a Psalm that was written by Asaph. He says, If Asaph called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart for his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Jesus uses this Old Testament reference to re- refuse their, uh, refute their attack. In this psalm, Asaph has said that, that God is the judge and he holds accountable the rulers and judges who've been appointed by God to protect the vulnerable, to care for the oppressed on earth. And he refers to those people in that role as gods or son of gods. They were actually uh, deputies of the heavenly king. They had been appointed and anointed to lead the people, to provide and care and protect God's people, much like shepherds. And Jesus is saying, if you can call those who do that gods, why are you upset about me being called God or the son of God? I've been doing the work I was appointed and anointed by God to do. Many see Jesus in this moment kind of indicating that he fulfilled the feast of dedication. He had been set apart to do the work of God. It affirms John's purpose of the entire gospel. If you remember John 20, verse 30 and 31, John says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these that are written are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the religious leaders, their response to Jesus was to seize him. They wanted a Messiah. They just didn't want Jesus. He wasn't who they wanted him to be. And so they rejected him. The good news is though, is not everybody did. Look how John 10 ends in verse 42. Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Jesus' time on this earth had not come to a place where he was, it was time for him to die yet. And so he continues to reveal his identity to others. And many who see him believe in him. They declare that John's testimony is true. And they placed their faith in him. You know, as I worked through this passage this past week, one of the things that became very clear is this, that salvation is God's work. When God created humankind, he did so to have a relationship with them and for them to enjoy creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, God pursued them in the garden. He clothed them physically with animal skins and he covered them spiritually with his grace. They didn't ask for it they just received it they accepted it and that hasn't changed when you and I sin God pursues us through his grace through the sacrifice of his son the the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Jesus the Messiah Savior and we don't have to earn this grace we can't we don't have to fear losing this grace because we can't lose it either Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 speak about this. Listen to what Paul has to say. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were nature, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But we do have to accept it. We receive it by faith. We admit that we are not capable on our own of saving ourselves, and so we trust in Jesus as the only one who can save us because he's fully God and he's fully man. We must accept this free gift of salvation by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, surrendering our lives to him. Believing is hearing his voice. It's trusting him to lead and it's following. The religious leaders, they trusted in themselves. They thought they had it all together and that they could earn God's favor by their behavior. We see them struggling between holding on to their way of life or surrendering to God's way of life. They held on so tightly that they were critical. They were judgmental. I'd even say they were miserable. It's not a very fun way to live. And honestly, I meet people like that Every day, people are holding so tightly to to what they want out of this life or what the world tends to offer them that they're fearful, they're hateful, even evil, because they've resisted Jesus invitation to come and experience life to the fullest by following him. But I've also met plenty of people who I would describe as joyful, as hopeful, as merciful, because they've heard the voice of the good shepherd and they continue to listen and follow him. They're experiencing security and freedom that comes by knowing, trusting, and believing in who Jesus is. I wonder which list would best describe you. Which list would your spouse or your children or your neighbor or your coworker? which list would they use to describe you? Are you critical, cynical, even judgmental, miserable? Or would they describe you as somebody who is hopeful, who's joyful, even merciful? We must recognize on this weekend, when we celebrate the freedom that we have in this country, we must recognize it it comes to us by the result of a sacrifice of those who have put themselves in harm's way on our behalf. We must also recognize that the path to spiritual freedom that you and I can experience, it also came by the sacrifice that Jesus made to make this freedom possible. Experiencing this freedom comes through surrendering to him. Paul speaks of this, this freedom we have in Christ and this surrendering we make to Christ's leadership through the spirit in his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter five. And I want us to work through just Galatians chapter five as paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the the message translation as we close this portion of our service. But I want you to listen with these ears and this filter. Which way of life would best describe you and the way you're living. Listen to what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter five. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harmless of slavery on you. I'm emphatic about this, Paul says. The moment any of you submit to any rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. It's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do or destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. Paul goes on and says, My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there's a root of selfish interest in us that's at odds with the free spirit just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? And then Paul goes on to describe what these two ways of life look like. He says, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to be loved or to love, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions ugly parodies of community I could go on Paul says this isn't the first time I've warned you you know if you use your freedom this way you'll not inherit God's kingdom and then he describes the different way to live what happens when we live God's way he brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct its energies wisely. Legalism is helpless, Paul says, in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our way and mindless responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen, the life of the spirit, let us make sure we do not just hold it as an idea in our head or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. Jesus came into this world as Messiah, as Savior, and as Lord. And he offers you and I eternal life, abundant life, life to the fullest to those of us who hear his voice and follow him. He might not be who we thought he was. We might not be excited about where we think he might be leading, but if we recognize who he truly is and we surrender to his leadings, we find true life and true freedom in him. So don't be blind or deaf any longer to who Jesus is. Quit trying to earn his love. Quit living in fear that he might not love you. Surrender the control of your life to Jesus today. Let him lead you as he reveals his character, the way he lives and loves in you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for him being fully God and fully man. Thank you, because that reality, that truth means that he is Messiah, he is Savior, he is Lord. And God, what we need in our life is not another idea from someone about how we should live. We need to know the truth. We need to know the way. And that's who Jesus is. We can follow him as our shepherd. We can follow him as our Lord and find in that surrender the greatest freedom we could ever experience. God, it it causes the freedom we experience as a country to even pale in comparison. God, our citizenship is in this world, but it's not of this world though. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's because we have claimed Jesus as our King. And so God, I pray that we would respond today with a heart that says, I will follow. I give up control of my life so that I can have the freedom and the peace, the joy, the, the, the hope, that comes in knowing Jesus and following him. And God, my prayer is that any person today who's, who hasn't seen clearly just who Jesus is, maybe today the blinders would come off. God, that you would clean out our ears so that we could hear your voice clearly. And God, I pray that we would respond, we would follow, we would experience life, life to the fullest, eternal life in heaven. And I thank you for that gift that comes through Jesus by praying through his name, amen.